0: Okay, well, preschoolers, you are dismissed. Those going to the preschool class, everyone else, please open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, as uh, this morning and for the next month, we are going to pause our series in Galatians in order to preach on the topic of Christian contentment. And I realize where we are at in Galatians, it's not necessarily an ideal place to, to pause. We're like in the middle of chapter 3 or something like that. So uh, I, I admit I'm not always the best uh, planning it out so it fits and hits uh, right where it needs to. Uh, however, this morning is the first Sunday of Advent, uh, a season that we like to set apart as a church as, as being a little bit different from the rest of the year. The season of Advent, it starts on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and so yes, we have now four Sundays before Christmas for those who are planning and and needing to get ahead on things. And the season of Advent then concludes on Christmas Day. The word Advent means arrival, and it's a season where we look back on and remember Christ's first arrival on earth, but it's also a season that we look forward to his return, his second arrival or Advent. And so this is why things are a bit different for us as a church this, this next month. Uh, for example, the, the worship team will be singing some different songs these next four weeks. Um, our city groups are going to pause from meeting these next four weeks. Uh, you may have noticed uh, visually, uh, which by the way, thank you to those who have helped with the, the decorating efforts of things around here. Uh, things look a little different uh, this, this next month. And so too, in our preaching, we're going to pause Galatians, which we we will pick back up in January, and for the next four weeks, I'll be preaching a series titled, Contentment for Christmas. And the way this, this series came about, it really traces back to our Ten Commandments series. If you remember when we were preaching through the Ten Commandments series, when we arrived at the tenth good word from our Father, which says, you shall not covet. And it was in preaching that text where we started really scratching the surface of how many times it is a discontented heart that leads us down these pathways of coveting and envy and jealousy. And that if we could only learn to be content in Christ, that we could then battle against the sinful inclination of our hearts to covet and, and what others ha- to covet what others have and that discontentedness that we feel in what we have. And so it was in that 10th tenth, tenth commandment sermon that I know, at least for me personally, the Lord started plowing up some things in my heart that I knew needed to be dealt with. And I, I know the same was happening for you as well. And so ever since that time, I've been praying about and thinking about when we could come back to this topic of contentment and, and dig in a little deeper on it and talk more about it. And I was waiting for the right time, and then it just seemed like December would be the ideal time for us. Because in the culture we live in, uh, there really is no better month to talk about contentment than the month of December. Do you guys agree? I mean, around every corner and at every store and on every website and on every email and on every social media post or commercial, there is someone trying to stir up discontentment in your heart. It is their job. There are professionals working around the clock to try to make money off of the discontentment in your heart. That is what is happening this next month, if you were not aware. This month, you're going to be tempted to be discontent with your finances as you're going to feel a bit of financial strain. It's just there's more things to spend money on this month. This month, you're going to be tempted to be discontent with what you have and what you don't have. This month, you're going to be tempted to be discontent and feel lonely as there are going to be some nights where you know other people are at some gatherings with family and friends and it just so happens to be a night that you're just home by yourself. This month, you're going to be tempted to be discontent when you're at a family gathering because the things in your family are not the way you'd want them to be and they're not the way that you would hope they would be. This month, you're going to be tempted to be discontent with the weather as the season changes, and you're going to be discontent with the fact that you're a year older than you were last year. This is true of all of us. We're all a year older than we were last year. You're going to be tempted to be discontent that some loved ones are not here this Christmas season who were here last season, or you're going to be tempted to be discontent that time is going by too quickly, or for you kids, that time is going by too slowly, And church, this is the month where where discontentment is almost invited and accepted to just go wild. It's almost like we as a as a as a culture and as a people, we've collectively excused it and we've called it normal. But this morning and for the next four Sundays, we're going to call it what it is, and and that is it is sinful. It is sinful. Now, in our English Bible translations, you, we don't necessarily see discontentment listed in some of the long lists of sins that, are, that we see throughout the New Testament. And that is because it's not necessarily always sinful. And we'll, we'll talk about in a few weeks uh, about when it is okay to be discontent. For example, like being discontent with the sin in your own heart, that would be a good thing to be discontent about. But most of the time, the vast majority of the time when we are discontent, it is, a, it is for sinful reasons. And what it's doing is it's creating this fertile soil in our hearts to grow a plethora of other sins uh, that, that are grown and cultivated. When we allow our hearts to be discontent, we are, invited a mul- we are inviting a multitude of sins to start to take root in our hearts and start to grow. Sins like coveting and envy and jealousy and complaining and unbelief, and greed, and lust, and ungratefulness, and anxiety, and pride, selfish ambition, strife, unforgiveness, bitterness. And I'm telling you, over, and I, and I hope that you'll be convinced of this as well over the next few weeks, that if we learned contentment, that we would be much more victorious and battle against all these different sins that are trying to take root in our hearts that we daily struggle with. And so as I was prayerfully considering all the different struggles of my own heart and all the different struggles of what I know is going on in the church right now, I could see that the key to solving and sanctifying and uprooting So much of what we are struggling with right now is for us to learn contentment, for us to learn contentment. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how to learn contentment, all right? How do we we get off and get started on this journey of learning contentment and growing in it? Next week, we'll look at what actually produces great gain in the world and in our lives, and that is godliness with contentment. The following week, then, we'll look at how to be content in the midst of suffering. That'll be a fun, fun one for us. And then on Christmas Eve, a Sunday morning, it'll be a Christmas Eve. A Sunday, a Christmas, a Sunday is a Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is a Sunday. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, Christmas Eve is a Sunday. Uh, we'll celebrate the contentment we have because of Emmanuel, that we can ultimately be content because God is with us. Okay, so that's where we're going this month. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll we'll jump into today's sermon. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this set aside special season where we can refocus our hearts and remember uh, on all that your first arrival accomplished, and all that we can be looking forward to with your second arrival and coming. And so, Father, I ask, Lord, that you would start to do a great work in our hearts, that you would help us learn contentment. Father, I ask that just like that song we just sang, that, God, we would be satisfied in you. Lord, help us learn contentment for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at Philippians chapter four. So Philippians four, let's first try to understand the context of these verses. I, it's never my favorite thing to just parachute into the middle of a letter like we're doing right here, which is why most of the time we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, but sometimes it is just necessary to parachute in and look at a verse. And so understand, let's understand the context of Philippians uh, a bit. Paul is writing this as a letter, to the church in Philippi, which was in Macedonia, or modern-day northern Greece, okay? And he's writing this letter from prison. He's in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. I'm emphasizing that point to you this morning. Lest you think that he's writing about contentment from a five-star hotel surrounded by family and friends... He is writing this from prison, and it's in response to uh, Epaphroditus bringing him a financial gift from the Philippians. And so the entire uh, letter of Philippians is really like his thank you letter uh, to the Philippians for supporting his ministry, okay? So that's a little context. Look now at Philippians 4, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Okay, so he's, he's rejoicing in their concern for him that they sent him this gift while he's in prison. But, but now he's trying to balance here being thankful and joyful with this gift he received. Again, when you receive a gift, you should be thankful and joyful for it. That's a right response. But he's trying to balance the thankfulness and joyfulness with the gift and also making sure that the Philippians understand that in Christ, he had found this rare jewel, this rare treasure called Christian contentment. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul had learned something in Christ that had allowed him to know how to be brought low. Which, which we're going to talk more in week three, contentment in the midst of suffering. But he had also learned something in Christ that allowed him to know how to abound. He had learned how to have some things without things having him. Paul had learned something that gave him the ability to be brought low and be okay and to abound and be okay. You see, he had learned in whatever situation he was in To be content. And so here's what we need to focus in on today, and this point is number one if you're taking notes, and that is contentment is something that must be learned. Contentment is something that must be learned. Contentment is not something that just comes naturally to us. Uh, We don't just arrive on the scene knowing how to be content in all circumstances, okay? Uh, just, just observe children around the Christmas tree this month. Actually, that's not, that's not fair to the children. Observe any man, woman, or child around the Christmas tree or just in society this month. Just observe the stirrings of your own heart this month and see that contentment does not come naturally to us. It is something that has to be learned. But take heart, church. We have a loving God who is trying to teach us and help us, helping us to learn this secret that not everyone knows about. Not everyone knows about the secret of contentment in Christ, but as his children, he wants us to know this. He wants us to learn this. And so he gives us opportunities and tests to help us learn the secret of contentment. Now, most of you know I've been teaching a class at the, the college this semester, and uh, this is my final week of teaching, and then they, they take a, a final, their final next Monday. And there have been certain things this semester that I really want the students to learn. Like, you know, we're reading a lot through a book, but there are a few things I really want them to know and I really want them to learn. And the things that I really want the students to learn are the things that I put on the test. Those are the questions that I put on the test and then all semester I'm preparing them because I I know this test question's coming. I'm preparing them. I'm trying to get them ready, trying to help them learn so that they'll be able to handle it it when it comes their way. Now, why do I give them tests? Is it because I'm mean? Is it because I'm punishing them? Is it because I've abandoned them or forgotten about them? No, I give them tests to help them learn something. I give them questions on the test over the things that I know they're going to need to learn and know in the future, to be equipped for their future careers and the dilemmas they're going to be facing. I know what's coming their way and the dilemmas they're going to have, and I'm trying to prepare them to be able to handle those. And so they need to learn these lessons, and I'm going to test them on this so that they will learn what I know they need to learn. Church, do you realize that contentment is something that God is trying to teach you and that you must learn? Do you realize that when he tests you and puts you through uncomfortable things in life that he's teaching you some things? Like I'm I'm concerned this is not even on some of our radars and so hopefully just bringing up the topic will be helpful for you. God wants you to learn like Paul did the secret to being okay whether you are brought low or whether you are raised up. And so, in order to teach you this, he has enrolled you in a class called Contentment in Christ 101. Did you guys know you've been enrolled in this class? Some of you, you're already past midterms. You didn't even know you were in the class. You've missed all the tests, Uh, you had no idea what was happening. You didn't realize there were things that that he was trying to teach you, things you needed to learn. You didn't even know there were still things you needed to learn. You just thought knowing all the Bible stories was all that God wanted you to learn. You've avoided or complained about all the tests he's given you. You've missed all the opportunities to learn and grow. You haven't understood why others seem to be growing and advancing and you seem to be stuck in this place. And it's all because you haven't learned contentment. All you know how to do is wallow in self pity when you're brought low and bask in pride when you're raised up. And you can't figure out why God keeps testing you in the same ways. It's almost as if He's trying to teach you something, it's almost as if He's trying to help you learn something. If you are a Christian, God has enrolled you in Contentment 101. Paul was, was like working on PhD level contentment stuff, writing about it from prison. And if we're honest, most of us are more like half day kindergarten contentment curriculum. We're still struggling with it like when we don't get our nap and snack and Paul's writing about it from prison. Contentment is something that must be learned, church. And God lovingly tests us in order to teach us how to be content in every circumstance. Now, here's where we need to pause, and let's define contentment so that we are all on the same page about what, is Paul, what Paul is talking about uh, that he had learned, okay? And Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is one of the books we have out in the lobby that we recommend to you, I think he gives a very helpful and biblical definition of Christian contentment. He writes, contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. Now that's a, It's a good one. It's a good definition. It's a little lengthy. Uh, I'll share it with you who don't have time to write it down. Uh, Nancy Wilson, in her book on contentment, which is also out in the lobby, shortens it up and simplifies it a bit, which I like simple definitions. They're easier for me to take with me as as we uh, go about life. And she writes, contentment is a deep satisfaction with the will of God. Contentment is a deep satisfaction with the will of God. Of God, Church, do you have a deep satisfaction with the will of God? Have you learned how to have a deep satisfaction with the will of God when you are brought low and when you are raised up? Have you learned how to have a deep satisfaction with the will of God with what you have and with what you don't have? Have you learned how to have a deep satisfaction with the will of God with where your finances are right now? Have you learned how to have a deep satisfaction with the will of God with how you look right now? And the relationships that you have with your physical health and the gifts and the abilities that God has given you. Have you learned how to have a deep satisfaction with the will of God? Well, how do we know if we've learned the lesson of contentment? How do we know if we are growing in a deep satisfaction with the will of God? Well, sometimes it's helpful to do a little assessment. Uh, You know, most classes at the start of it, you take kind of a a pre-class quiz to just uh, the teacher's way of kind of proving to the students that you need this material, okay? And so Thomas Watson, who lived uh, during the 1600s, who I can only assume one of my favorite dogs is named after, um, maybe, we don't, no, we can't confirm, all right, uh, but one of, is one of my favorite authors, Thomas Watson, and he wrote a book called The Art of Divine Contentment. It's not one we have out uh, in the bookstore yet, but you can look it up, The Art of Divine Contentment, and in one of the chapters, he provides an assessment of contentment, And so I'd like to walk us through this assessment this morning. Uh, This will be point number two in our sermon. We're going to take an assessment of your contentment, okay? Now, don't be nervous. Uh, We're not going to trade papers and grade other people's papers, all right? This is going to be a self-grade, self-aware, let the Spirit convict your own heart. Uh, But this is part of the learning process to first take an assessment on where we're at. Have we learned contentment like Paul had? Well, Thomas Watson, a few hundred years ago, wrote first that a contented spirit is a silent spirit, all right? So this is part of our assessment of contentment. A contented spirit is a silent spirit. You see, when you are discontented, that is when you go down the road of, 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 of coveting and envy because your heart and your heart just becomes this restless, noisy heart, like, do you know what it feels like to just have a restless, noisy heart? I mean, some people, and when they've learned contentment, they can be out in the world, all this noise and chatter going on all around them, all this chaos going on all around them, but they, they, their heart has... has They've quieted their heart and soul. They're they're silent before the Lord. Um, But but a discontented heart, it's it's a restless, it's a noisy heart. Uh, People who have a noisy heart, they have trouble hearing from God because their heart is just so noisy and discontented. And some of you, your hearts are just so restless and noisy that not only can you not hear God, but you feel like you must go share with others some of the chatter of your noisy heart. (laughs) A noisy heart is a heart that loves to complain. It's a heart that's always complaining about something, always chattering about something, always gossiping about something. A noisy, restless, complaining heart loves to find other people with a similar heart to get together with, to sinfully complain together, all under the guise of calling it fellowship or a play date or a prayer group two noisy and complaining hearts who really get each other and they consider one another to be really vulnerable and authentic. Whereas God would consider them to be sinful and in need of repentance because they need to tell their noisy heart to be quiet. If you have a restless and noisy heart, you are absolutely still in need of learning contentment so that you can say, like David said in Psalm 131, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. A weaned child is a child who feels the hunger pains, but who doesn't cry and scream and throw a tantrum, but waits quietly and patiently for their mother to feed them. And so take an assessment. Have have you learned how to calm and quiet your soul in every circumstance? Even when you have hunger pains, have you learned how to wait for your hunger to be satisfied by God? Thomas Watson also said in our assessment of contentment, number two, a contented spirit is a cheerful spirit. A contented Christian is is not just a complacent Christian or a passive Christian or someone who's just learned to just not care as much about life. No, someone who has learned contentment has learned how to not only submit to the will of God, but they've learned that true submission requires a cheerful submission, a joyful submission and obedience to the will of God. And so take an assessment of your contentment. In general, do you have a cheerful spirit? Watson goes on to say, number three, a contented spirit is a thankful spirit. Someone who has learned contentment has learned to genuinely give thanks in all circumstances, for they know that this is the will of God for them. A contented Christian has found a deep satisfaction in the will of God, and they're thankful in all circumstances. Do you have a thankful spirit? Watson said, uh, number four, a contented spirit adapts to all situations. This is someone who, has learned, uh, someone who has learned to be content, um, knows how to be brought low. They've, they, they know how to be raised up. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4. A contented spirit is able to adapt to both. You see, a discontented person, they may love Jesus. They may want to do great things for Jesus and with Jesus. They may be gifted with all sorts of gifts and abilities for Jesus. But they are not in a good place to serve God because in the service of God and in the battles of spiritual warfare, the conditions change all the time, and you have to be able to adapt. This is why Jeremiah uh, Burroughs said, When one is in a discontented condition, then a, uh, then a man or woman is exceedingly unfit for the service of God. He didn't care how gifted they were, how educated they were. If they were in a discontented condition they were exceedingly unfit for the service of God. Now, why is that? Well, you see, if you want to go disciple the nations, if you want to go be a blessing to the city and the world, if you want to do more and more ministry, we must learn contentment because if we don't, if we don't, is that me? That is me, all right. Uh, If we don't, then what's going to happen When we experience some setbacks in ministry and resources are low. Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Self-pity, discouragement, despair are going to happen. We must learn contentment. Because if we don't, then what's going to happen when when the ministry we're doing experiences success? And there's there's fruitfulness and resources are abundant. Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. If we haven't learned contentment, then pride and arrogance self-sufficiency are going to happen. But a contented spirit is able to adapt to any situation in a godly way. And so take an assessment. In general, are you able to handle setbacks and success? Which, by the way, success is probably more difficult to handle. But are you able to handle setbacks and success? Are you able to handle scarce and abundant resources? All right, last point of Watson's assessment, number five, says a contented spirit does not use sin as a solution to its current condition. Church, there are God-honoring ways to change our condition and our circumstances. If we are discontent with our poor health, we can start eating healthier and exercising and then trust God with the outcome. If we are discontent with a certain relationship, there are some God-honoring ways to change that. We can pray for that person. We can listen more to that person. We can serve that person. We can work on communicating better with that person. There are some God-honoring ways to change some of our circumstances and conditions, but a discontented spirit wrongly thinks that they can sin their way out of their condition or circumstance. They are not deeply satisfied with the will of God, and therefore they think they have a better way to get there, a better way to get where they want to go, and they'll sin their way out of it. So those are the five self-assessments. Again, don't grade other people on these five, but uh, how did you guys do? A contented spirit is a silent spirit. A contented spirit is a cheerful spirit. A contented spirit is a thankful spirit. A contented spirit adapts to all situations. A contented spirit does not use sin as a solution to its current condition. Now, if you feel like you just... Knocked it out of the park, home run, yeah, you don't need the rest of these weeks, uh, maybe come talk to me afterwards, <laughs> might be some other things we can work on, but for the rest of us, listen, don't despair, don't despair. Christ came to earth to save discontented sinners like you and me, he came for people like us who have restless and noisy hearts. He came to rescue us from joyless hearts, from ungrateful hearts, from unadaptable from hearts, from hearts whose first inclination is to sin our way out of our condition instead of be deeply satisfied in the will of God. But church, the good news is that Jesus Christ arrived here on earth 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty for our disobedience and to empower now our obedience. And he is coming back again to finally and definitively right all wrongs and perfectly satisfy our longing souls. And in the meantime, he's helping us learn how to be deeply satisfied with the will of God so that we could pray like he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And so before we close this morning, my, my goal this morning is not to just show you how elementary we all are in our learning contentment. I do want to leave you with some very practical ways to start learning contentment this month. But before we even get to the practical things, let's get our theology right. Because if we want to learn how to have a deep satisfaction with the will of God, then we must have a right belief in God. And there are three specific attributes of God that if we are not trusting in, we will not learn contentment. And so yeah, Andrea, you can put up point number three. We're moving into point number three, how to learn contentment. It starts with believing in, and trusting in God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, and God's goodness. These are the three attributes we have to understand and and believe in and trust in this month. Because when you have a heart that is discontent, it is a result of you not trusting in either God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, God's goodness, or all three. Now, we'll keep talking about all three all month, but just to touch on each of them briefly, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about God being in control of all things. After King Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled, he finally recognized that God was sovereign and he was not. Something that not all of us come to grips with. But in Daniel 4.35, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Our God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And in understanding God's sovereignty, we must understand the different aspects of his will. He has a sovereign will, or some call a secret will, that he has decreed certain things to come to pass that absolutely will come to pass. He then has his revealed will, which he has revealed to us through the scriptures. And as a part of his permissive will, he allows his creation to obey or disobey his revealed will. And a part of his permissive will is that God does allow evil to persist for a time. And we don't know all the reasons why he allows evil to continue on, but we do know that he is not morally responsible for the evil that humans and fallen angels choose to commit. And yet we also know that nothing is outside of his control. We know that even though his creatures will commit evil, we know that because God is sovereign, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That what man intended for evil, God can also intend for good. God is in control of all things. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. None can stay his hand and none can say to him, what have you done? And so, church, tell your discontented heart to be quiet. None can complain to him and say, what have you done? God is in control of all things. He has either directly caused or indirectly allowed, through secondary causes, everything in your life right now. Nothing has been outside of his control. Now, God's sovereignty would be scary if we didn't also believe that he is infinitely wise and perfectly good. God's wisdom refers to his perfect and all-encompassing knowledge and understanding and application of that knowledge to achieve his purposes in the best way possible. No person can rightly say that God should have done something better or more wisely. But isn't this what a discontented heart screams out? God, you should have done this that way. And you should have done that this way. You should have done this that way and that this way. God, I would have done it differently. But God is infinitely wise and he is perfectly good. God's goodness is perfect and excellent. He is kind and benevolent. He is generous and merciful and gracious. And so, church, if you are going to learn contentment, you must first believe and trust in God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, and God's goodness. If you are seeing discontent in your heart, you must ask God to help you believe in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his goodness. These are his attributes we must meditate on this month and prayerfully cry out, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. But now let me offer four points of practical application. That's our getting our theology right, getting the attributes of God right. But let me offer four points of practical application as we enroll in this intensive month-long course on contentment. And these points have been adapted and updated from a theologian and professor in England back in the 1800s named uh, Edward Pusey. And he gives four guidelines that he suggests to follow in order to guard your heart and help you grow in contentment. And all these guidelines, they're, they're rooted in biblical truth. And these are four points that, that I've decided to uh, put on a note card and carry with me in my pocket all month. And so I would invite any of you who would be up for that to, to join me in this, this commitment this month uh, to, to live by these guidelines, to help these guidelines guard our hearts and to help us learn contentment. And we'll leave this slide. We'll maybe even put it up at the end of the service uh, for people that want to write it down. But the four guidelines he gives is, number one, he says, allow thyself to complain of nothing, not even the weather. I mean, that got me in the heart a little bit. Look, if you're open to Philippians still, look back to Philippians 2.14. Look what he had just written to the Philippians. He said, He said, In Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, I realize this is difficult for some of you and myself included. I mean, don't complain about anything, even the weather. Complaining about the weather is how we make small talk with one another. I mean, I grew up in California, so that's not what we did out there, but ever since moving to Indiana, that was like an easy go-to, get a conversation started, you just complained about the weather. I don't know if Hoosiers realize that the rest of the world doesn't have to worry about that as much when they're in nicer climates, but for us, it's and even now, I'm sort of complaining, so forgive me. Uh, Be gracious with me. I still have a lot to learn, all right? Uh, But I want to commit to not complain of anything, even the weather. Because in reality, church, if we believe that God is sovereign over the weather, and if we believe he is sovereign over where he has each of us living right now, and if we believe that he is infinitely wise and perfectly good, if we believe that, who really are we to complain about what God has orchestrated in the changing of the seasons? I mean, do you really think you could orchestrate the weather patterns better than God? Have you really thought that one through? I know I haven't. And so while complaining about the weather, it does seem like a small thing, and I I agree, it it is a small thing. I think if we can get some wins over the small complaints, we will learn more and more to not complain about the bigger things in life. Paul is writing this from prison, and he's not complaining. He has learned contentment. And so, church, let's commit to this for this month. No complaining about anything, not even the weather. And let's see how the Lord works in our hearts to help us learn contentment. Now, we don't need you to, uh, we don't need several of you to become like the church hall monitor on this issue, okay? And for those that weren't here this Sunday, please do not jump down their throat next Sunday when they're like, can you believe the weather outside, all right? Be gracious with people. This is more for your own heart check, okay? Not to go policing this on everyone else. But do all things without grumbling or disputing. The second guideline that he gives to help us learn contentment, I'm going to read his version of it, and you'll see why I simplified it. He said, Never allow thyself to to dwell on the wish that this or that had been or were otherwise than it was or is, God Almighty loves thee better and more wisely than thou dost thyself. Okay, (laughs) just for, I didn't want to like, I mean, I simplified it a bit for the note card and for the slide, all right? I said, don't wish for a different past or present. Now listen, church, nothing wrong with planning for a better future, Nothing wrong with with envisioning a better future, working towards that future, but I'm saying don't waste your energy wishing for a different past or present. If we are trusting in God's sovereignty and wisdom and goodness, we won't spend our time and energy wishing that things were different in the past or even the present. We can still work towards a better future. We can still work towards progress and advancements in our, in our life and ministry and church. Those are all good, but we must learn to be content with our past. Don't spend your energies wishing for a different past. Third guideline he gives is never compare thine own lot with that of another You see why I wrote these on a note card, and I'm going to carry them with me. These are tough. You see, this is when, when we start comparing our own lot with another. This is when coveting and envy really starts to go crazy in our hearts. When we are looking at what God has given others, we become blind to what he has given us. So for instance, if I gave you $1,000 for Christmas, that would be pretty, pretty cool be a pretty generous gift. Now, don't hold your breath. I'm I'm giving you contentment for Christmas, all right? So don't don't be waiting for $1,000. But if I gave you $1,000, that'd be a pretty generous Christmas gift. But if I gave the person next to you $2,000, and you catch wind of that, and if you haven't learned contentment, I'm telling you, you will not be able to enjoy that $1,000 I gave you because you'll just be looking at their 2,000. When we compare what our neighbor has with what we have, what we're doing is we're deciding to create our own standards to judge God by. We view our neighbor as like this measuring stick of God's love for us. If they have something we don't have, then we wrongly believe that God has failed to be good to us. And we show that we are not trusting his goodness. And if our neighbor doesn't have something that we have, then we we feel this like extra special uh, blessing and, and, and love upon us that he has not bestowed upon them. Comparing yourself to others, it does so many horrible things in your heart. It steals your joy. It cultivates discontentment. It divides you from your neighbor because instead of helping your neighbor, instead of, instead of loving your neighbor like Jesus called you to, No, you're now just divided against them. You're jealous of them. Never compare your own lot with that of another church. Let's commit to to just not do this at all this month. Let's trust that God will do the right thing and the best thing for our neighbor and for us. If God gave our neighbor 2,000 and you 1,000, can't you trust that he has his wise and good reasons for doing that? Why do you think that gives you permission to now be discontent with what he's given you? Never compare your own lot with that of another. And then fourthly, he writes, never dwell, I, I shortened this up as well. He says, never dwell on the morrow. Remember that it is God's, not thine. The heaviest part of sorrow often is to look forward to it. The Lord will provide. And so I shortened it to don't set your mind on the worries of tomorrow. I'm running a little low on time. I think you get number four. Let's keep moving. Uh, all right, so church, here, four, four guidelines to help guard our hearts, to help grow contentment uh, in us. And so just go uh, do these, okay? <laughs> Pretty easy. You guys got it? You got it. Actually, no, not easy. Not possible. But there's one more thing from our passage in Philippians that we haven't touched on yet that will give us hope in our learning of contentment. Look now at Philippians 4.13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, you see, church, it's through Paul's union with Christ. It's because of Christ's power that now he can learn contentment. Church, in our own strength, learning contentment is a hopeless endeavor, But because Christ came, because of Christ's advent, because he has arrived on earth and into our lives, we can be empowered to learn contentment in all circumstances. We can only do this church through Christ who strengthens us. And so commune with him this month. Don't just follow these points in your own strength. Meditate on and celebrate his sovereignty and his wisdom and his goodness and rely upon his strength to guard your heart and to learn contentment. And so we're going to go right from the sermon into celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning because this is where our strength comes. This is why we can say we can learn contentment in all circumstances. It is only through our union with Christ. It is only through Christ's power at work in and through us. And so as we celebrate this supper, we're reminded that it's only our union with Christ that's going to strengthen us. And it's only through his power that we learn contentment in all circumstances. There was a a saying in the Roman Empire that you should never complain of your hard fortune as long as Caesar is your friend. Because think about, think about the Roman Empire. Caesar had almost unlimited power, had almost unlimited resources. And if he was your friend, I mean, I really don't care what happened to you. If he was your friend in the Roman Empire, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And church, how much more? Should we never complain or be discontent with our life as long as Christ is our friend? We can do all things through him who strengthens us. We can be content when we are brought low and when we are raised up because Christ is our friend. We have nothing to complain about if Christ is our friend. We have nothing to despair about if Christ is our friend. We have nothing to be ungrateful about if Christ is our friend. We have nothing we can't handle if Christ is our friend. And we can be deeply satisfied with the will of God, and we can say it is well because Christ is our friend. So we're going to pray to close the sermon, but also pray to then dismiss you to the tables and This is for followers of Christ to come. Those of you who would consider Christ your friend and you united to him through faith, we we call you to come to the tables and remember where your strength comes from. Comes from your union with Christ. Comes from being part of his body, the church.